Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My guest today is Austria's permanent representative to the United Nations office at Geneva, Ambassador Elisabeth Tichy Fisselberger. We talk about Austria's long and fascinating history, how Austria sees its future, as well as its involvement with the multilateral agenda here in Geneva and the importance of its relationship with the European Union. We also look at human rights and Austria's special experience with neutrality, especially relevant as Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its waging of an illegal war continues. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Unless you live in countries that are largely or even completely closed to information from outside, like Russia, China, North Korea, you will certainly be aware of the terrible war and illegal invasion of Ukraine by its neighbour, Russia. One of my simple objectives for this programme over the past 10 years has always been to raise listeners' level of knowledge. And today we will talk about one of Switzerland's neighbours to the east, Austria, and through that conversation cast some light on questions that I have, and probably you listening in have too, about Austria and the United Nations, and separately some of the implications of the war that is currently being waged not so far from the border of my guest's own country. I'm on Austrian territory today, and honoured to have as my guest Austria's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva, Her Excellency Ambassador Elisabeth Tichy Fisselberger. She's trained in law, in languages and has represented her country abroad in Brussels, in London and Dublin before coming here to Geneva in, I think, around 2017. Ambassador Elizabeth Tichy Fisselberger, it's good to meet you again and thank you so much for inviting me and listeners to the McKay interview to Austria's permanent mission. Hello. Welcome, Michael. It's thank nice you. to see you. Thank you. Ambassador, Austria is a neighbour of Switzerland yet separated by language from Geneva, it is quite possible that many of us, at least those of us living in the Swiss Romand, the French-speaking part of Switzerland, do not know very much about your country, even though it is relatively close to us. However, we must bear in mind that over 60% of this country shares a common language, German, with your country, and that's important. Now, Austria has a unique place in the history of continental Europe. Duchy, Archduchy, the Habsburg dynasty, whose foundation or family seat was actually in this country in the Middle Ages, in the canton of Argo in Lenzburg. The Holy Roman Empire combined the combined empire of Austria Hungary in the 19th and 20th century. And since 1945, reduced in geographical area, but stable and neutral, and now consistently over many years one of the richest per capita countries globally. It's in the top quartile, 25%, I think. How would you describe the sweep of history of your country? And please set the scene by giving me, giving us, a sort of Cook's tour, as the British say. Thomas Cook was a tourist a pioneer. A Cook's tour of your country, uh, Ambassador. Well, you're quite right in thinking that the Swiss don't always know very much about Austria's past, not even its uh, recent past. I was quite surprised one day in talking to a private banker uh, that he didn't know that Austria had a four-power occupation after World War II, just like Germany. Uh, and interestingly, this gentleman was old enough to have been an eyewitness of that time. But of course, Austria was not very interesting for private banking at the time, that's quite clear. As you say, we have a varied history, which was, like most countries' history, very much marked by our geography in the center of the continent. 
as well as uh, along the Danube, which of course was always a lifeline in Europe, and therefore we were quite often uh, in the center of conflicts between East and West. Um, they say that the Habsburgs very cleverly uh, conquered an empire not by fighting, but by dynastic marriages, and, but that is only half the truth. Only half because the truth, Because at oh, okay. the time when the Ottomans were working their way across the Balkans and beyond, there was quite a lot of peoples in Eastern and Southeastern Europe who were happy to come, as we would say today, under the umbrella of the Habsburgs. And not surprisingly, when the Ottomans were finally defeated, that was the time when the extension, the territorial extension, of the Austrian Habsburgs empire was the biggest, let alone the Spanish Habsburgs, who also had a big empire. Um, now, after that time came the, the only ever female Habsburg on the throne, uh, in my view, the most prescient of them all. She first had to really fight for her territory because she was a woman. Uh, the men around wouldn't recognize her inheritance. Uh, she lost some of her territory, but after that she started introducing some very clever economic, social and uh, economic and, and, and social reforms which arguably saved Austria from having ex an experience. And just like, put a, a date on that, more or less, when was that well, and what she, was her name? She, was, uh, she reigned between 1740 and 1780. Uh, and that her daughter was the famous Marie Antoinette, who got killed during oh, the French yes, Revolution. Course, but yeah. the, the mother, the mother was quite a clever lady, and she avoided any such revolution for Austria. Now, after that came Napoleon, who changed the map of Europe, and also introduced the notion of nationalism. Uh, all over Europe, in France, as well as in Germany, as well as in the non-German-speaking areas which belong to the Austrian Empire. And this is where nationalism started and where these tendencies really dominated the entire 19th century for Austria. At the time, however, when Austria was as prosperous as never before because it was the beginning of globalization, it was the first industrialization. So from the econ economic point of view, the Austrian country was doing rather well. And then came the two world wars, both of which were disastrous for Austria. After World War I, a big uh, part of the territory got lost and what was left was not really economically feasible. So I was wrong in my description at the beginning, yes, I see. That's a little bit yeah. wrong, yes. Okay. Um, Austria <laughs> between the, the two world wars was a poor country which was not really ready to survive and you know what happened, the Nazis came came World War II, and after World War II, the country really had to rebuild from scratch, which was only possible owing to the martial aid. And no other country in Europe got as much martial aid per capita as Austria did. Is that a fact? I didn't realize that. Okay. Yes, yeah. that's, that's a true story. But from then on, uh, people perceived that Austria was reborn in 1955, um, and then became a small country, but not unhappy to be a small country, a neutral country, which plays a big role. Um, and I think the big difference, maybe, compared to Switzerland, is that Austria is a small country today, a small neutral country in the center of Europe, as Switzerland is. But we have that tradition and somehow that uh, collective memory that we belonged for centuries to a bigger entity, a multicultural entity, Whereas Switzerland fought for 700 years and more not to belong to a bigger entity. That's and, a very important distinction, isn't it? And that makes a certain number of diplomatic reflexes. Mm, that's true. Now, the ne my next question is impossible to answer, um, but I want you to have a go at it, and that is just to look a little bit into the future, but particularly for us who don't know the country very well, or maybe just as tourists. How does Austria see its own future today? I mean, what's the mood of Austria as it looks ahead? 
Well, it's always difficult to be a prophet. We have one of these funny Austrian authors who said everybody's a prophet with hindsight. That's much easier. Uh, from a front, I'd say I think we, we have found our natural place to be in the European Union. As I said, we belong to a bigger entity most of our history. Uh, we are a small country, 8 million people on a planet of 8 billion, so it makes sense to be part of a bigger unity. And that bigger unity is uh, based on the values that are ours and the principles that are ours, the democracy, the rule of law, human rights, all, all the things which we think are the right basis for shaping our future. Uh, we have learned in the European Union that you have to make compromises, Jacques Delors, who used to be president of the European Union, once said uh, it's difficult to fall in love with a compromise. That's what the European <laughs> Union is all about. Yes. People are not always happy after having made a compromise, but they have made a statement. It had to be a Frenchman that, that would say can... that. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you agree to a compromise, you made a statement that this is something you can live with. That's right. And if everybody does that, you find yourself at an equal level. So this is where we see our, our natural uh, platform to operate from, from, from the future. I must say, and I think we may be talking about this at a later stage, of course, what has been happening ever since the 24th of February, that suddenly we are back to war in Europe and not Cold War, but Hot War. That is something which um, is very depressing for well, we're going to come. We're going to come to that because it is so important and it is, it is current. But let, let me, let's just talk a little bit more about the, the European Union, particularly for the benefit of those uh, who um, might not know some of the detail. I just want to get a broad overview of Austria's relationship with the EU, why that relationship is so important to Austria and why it's also important to the EU. And for example, um, is Austria particularly agricultural? I mean, one thinks of it essentially from a tourist point of view, mm. uh, but I'm sure, I, mean, I know there's an industrial base there, mm. but tell, give us a little bit more information about the nature of Austria and what the benefits are of being in the Union, apart from the political benefits. Of course, we may be best known for our tourism, for our landscape, and also for the part of our history that makes up a lot of our tourism. But in, in reality, the country has quite a solid industrial base. Uh, we have many companies which are called hidden giants because they don't actually appear under their own names, but are subcontractors to very important German or other brands. So a lot of German cars come from Austria. A lot of other German products come from subcontractors in Austria, but these are high-quality uh, niche uh, subcontractors who do particular things that nobody else does, and there's quite a lot of them. You'd, you'd, you'd be surprised there is quite a list. So the economy works relatively well, but given that basis, it is of course important to have open borders. The European Union is not only about, but also about open borders for people, commodities, services, services capital, and all the rest of it. But it is also a common legal space which is very important to have because the bigger a, spa a legal space is where you have the same rules, the easier it is to operate. And this is the internal market. Course, for a small country, that opens, opens up possibilities. Um, we had to be very careful during the Cold War. We were a neutral country um, and the Soviet Union was watching us. But there had always been a lining to the West, of course. We were not neutral ideologically. So when the Iron Curtain fell, it was a logical thing to ask for membership of the European Union. 
we were not the only ones at that stage. Two other neutral countries joined at that time, Sweden and Finland. And it was an opening of the European Union against uh, Central and, as it later came, Eastern Europe. Because until that stage, it had been basically a Western European Union. Then it became a, That's more, true. That's true, yeah. a more continental union. Tell me a little bit more about why your country is neutral. Again, for the benefit of those, the younger ones listening, who may not be aware of the, of the history of, of Austria, particularly coming out of 1945, as, as you mentioned. And what, what are the conspicuous features and consequences of neutrality, Austrian style, as opposed to Swiss style or Finnish mm. style or Swedish style? And not being a member of NATO, give me some insights into the thinking that might be going on in Vienna right now regarding defence. I mean, for example, does Austria feel nervous? Well, uh, our neutrality goes back to 1955. 1955. It yeah. was the political condition for recovering our full independence and getting rid of the full power occupation, which we had had for 10 years, from 1945 until 1955. Uh, but from the very beginning, it was a bit different from Swiss neutrality. Uh, you know that uh, Austria joined the United Nations, for example, only six weeks after having recovered full independence. Switzerland joined in 2002, <laughs> if I'm well informed. I, I know, yes. um, and we, we always had a slightly different politic, uh, politics because we had to juggle between these obligations uh, stemming from our neutrality and those coming from being mm. a member of the United Nations. Uh, an even bigger difference to Switzerland, of course, uh, started when we became a member of the European Union. Uh, because now uh, we have a constitutional provision which makes it clear that whenever there is a decision by the European Union in the framework of the common foreign security policy, that part of a decision will be carved out from our neutrality, which, which is different, of course, from what Switzerland does. So our neutrality has always been a military neutrality, no foreign arms, no foreign bases, etc., no military alliance, but no ideological neutrality. We've always been in favor of the West, in favor of the principles that unite us all in, in Western countries, and we have always been outspoken whenever international law was violated, and uh, we will do so in the future. So well. there is a like a, a home defence force, a military defence force, but there's no conscription. There's a volunteer. I mean, how does it work? Is it a we citizen? We do have conscription. You do have conscription. We do have Even conscription. Now. We oh. have yes, we have an army every male year. only or male and female. Mm, male only. Male only. Uh, on a voluntary basis for women, so oh. there are women in our army, but it's it's not uh, it's not a conscription. The men also have the possibility of doing a so-called civil service. Those who don't want to do military service, they have to work for charities for a variety of things that are that they can choose from in such a case. Uh, you were asking about NATO. This is no discussion in Austria at the moment, and there wouldn't be a majority. It's it's a bit different from the mood we of obviously find in Finland or Sweden at the moment. Because of geography and, again, because of history. Yeah? Yeah. I suppose so, yeah, yeah. yeah. My guest today is Ambassador Elizabeth Tiki fisselberger Austria's permanent representative to the United Nations. And we're talking about her country and some of the important issues that she has to deal with here in Geneva. So, Ambassador, let's, let's turn to Geneva. What, what are the important multilateral dossiers for Austria at the UN Geneva that are on your desk at present, and why are they important to Austria? Uh, this is an interesting question. Since I came, these priorities have actually been shifting. 
I realized that my predecessor focused very much on disarmament issues. He had been very much involved on, in the negotiation of what came to be the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, and when I first came, this treaty was brand new and there was still a lot of emotions about it around. There was already at the time when I arrived this battle of narratives, as we say, which we're having these days. What exactly is multilateralism all about? For us, this is about a multilateral system which has been created with a view, with the primary view, to avoiding future wars by agreeing on a certain number of principles and values. Now some non-European actors are telling us these are Western values, there are other values as well, and they are questioning this narrative. So this is very much what I found when I first came. Uh, then came, of course, the time when I was president of the Human Rights Council, where I had to focus on these questions, which are always important for us, like any of our countries in the, in the European Union. But, of course, Geneva is also very much a humanitarian hub. Uh, what is going on here, the activities of the Red Cross, of the UN High Commission on Refugees, International Organization on Migration, is very important also for our domestic policies. And in the current phase, these organizations are actually our best hope to at least alleviate the suffering of civilian populations. So they are very, very important. Another important factor is, of course, the WTO, which is a theater where the European Union speaks with one voice and is therefore quite powerful and one of very few actors who really uh, can change the scene there. But that is also the basis for the economic policies going on in the European Union and what is going on in, in, in my own country, Austria. And then we have seen ever since the pandemic started how important health matters got. Nobody really anticipated that. We thought that was a technical organization. Uh, but Geneva is not only the headquarters of the World Health Organization, but the real health hub. There's That's a right. number of other health organizations as well. All of them very active these days, very important. I think nobody anticipated how important they were going to be. And what we're entering now, negotiations on the so-called pandemic preparedness treaty, are going to be very important and are going to be a lot more than just a technical treaty. Because the health area, I think, has also become some kind of seismograph for what's going on geopolitically. That's true. That's true. Now, you were president, as you said, of the UN Human Rights Council in 2020. I think many of us, particularly those who don't follow the UN closely, people in business or in other walks of life, may not be familiar with it. So tell me about this important institution. What are its origins? I'm curious to know. What is it for? I mean, I mean what's its purpose? And is it really effective and credible at carrying out its role? Rather like a recalcitrant child at school, would you say that there's room for improvement when one writes a school report about a child? Is there room for improvement of the Human Rights Council? When I look at the list, there are some strange bedfellows, not least Russia and Ukraine. But tell, tell me how the council could improve itself. Well, the Council goes back to the Human Rights Commission, which was actually founded in 1948. It goes back uh, as far as that. Its first president was Eleanor Roosevelt, 
she was mandated together with the then commission to elaborate what came to be the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because they hadn't managed to agree on such a thing when they agreed on the Charter of the United Nations, so that got a little bit postponed. And that uh, commission then worked until the year 2006, um, negotiated quite a lot of human rights treaties, separate treaties on specific issues of human rights, but got completely bogged down in political bickering uh, by 2006. The Human Rights Council was negotiated as the succeeding uh, organism at the rather propitious moment in multilateral history, while the Human Rights Commission, for example, had only held meetings of six weeks a year, all in one go, and had concentrated only on a particular set of countries, like the Americans criticized Cuba and the Russians criticized South Africa and apartheid and so on. The Human Rights Council is different from that. It has longer meetings. It has three periods of meetings of 10 weeks at least. Now it does 11 or 12 weeks. And it talks about all the countries of the world. So that certainly is a success story. It is a political body. Somebody said you shouldn't criticize an orange, uh, an apple for not being an orange. <laughs> and that means for the Human Rights Council that you shouldn't criticize the Human Rights Council for not being a tribunal or not being some kind of military task force. It is a political forum where all the human rights questions of this world can be discussed uh, in the hope that you can nudge countries to improve their situation. But wherever that doesn't work, you can at least keep that subject matter on the agenda, repeat it again and again until the day when improvements are possible and, and sort of have the unfinished agenda of the human of the international community on human rights. So it's a body more for persuasion than for sanction. Yes, exactly. Well, it, some, some think uh, it is a sanction if there is a special rapporteur being established on, to report on a particular country. And we can see that these special rapporteurs, in particular on country situations, tend to be very unpopular. Countries do everything to avoid them or to thwart them. And that shows that they must not be totally irrelevant. Mm, true. They, they're, they're being taken seriously. Now, of course, this is what the council does. It is a continuous discussion about the unfinished agenda on human rights. Uh, of course, one could have hope that it would be more effective than what it is. Um, but as I said, it, it does reach certain small progress. It never has the big blockbuster success stories, but it does achieve here and there little success stories. Sometimes, unfortunately, you then have relapses like we have had in Sudan and we have had in Ethiopia and in other places recently. And I read, it, I read that when you were president that there was some controversy. I mean, was that uncomfortable for you or was it just as a professional diplomat that you, you lived with it and you managed it? Well, you know that the council is there to have controversies, otherwise it, it would be very boring. That's what it's for. As the president, you make sure that all the rules are being observed, that everything is correct, that everybody can announce their voice. Um, 
it is also important as a president to fight for certain things. I mean, I had to fight, of course, for the council to be able to go on and do its work. In spite of the pandemic, we had to invent all the hybrid and virtual ways of working, which were then copied by other UN organizations. The so Human Rights Council was, the, that, was the first yeah. was the first forum that took up work again, and the only forum in the UN which mm. accomplished its program of work in in 2020. I see. Okay. But on top of that, as the president, you always have to make sure that certain things work like that you give enough voice to to NGOs to civil society and you stand up in cases of reprisals that you hear about I see okay last question or last last but one question ambassador we 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 cannot have a conversation today the 15th of march the ides mm-hmm. of march from julius Caesar, without addressing the present conflict in Ukraine, please share with me how you see the conflict as seen through the prism of your experience as a top diplomat and former president of the UN Human Rights Council. And as a rider to that, is it conceivable, Ambassador, that the perpetrators of the slaughter of civilians will be held to account? And how and where? How does that work when this is all over? Well, we're, of course, talking of an unprovoked aggression of one country against its neighbor, including its capital. This is something which hasn't happened in post-war history so far, and it is for all of us diplomats somehow a collective failure and and a devastating experience. Uh, We always had problems that we needed to discuss, But um, not having been able to avoid war really is uh, a disaster. And somehow it makes us feel as if everything we've been working for in the last 70 years didn't really work out the way we wanted it to. And you can feel feel that palpably when you talk to your colleagues. We can all feel that. And we can see that um, it is a different mood from what happened in, in the Cold War. Many countries in the Cold War, it was a Cold War, but this is not a Cold War. This is people dying every day. Um, most countries have condemned that, so has Austria. On accountability, that is always a very difficult question. As you know, it takes a long time, it takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of resilience and perseverance. Uh, we all hope that accountability will happen one day. It might take a long time, not just in the case of what Russia is doing at the moment, but also in the case of all the other war crimes that have happened over times. Um Uh, Together with other countries, Austria has taken this case to the International Criminal Court, and we hope that the court will be able to do its work. This is in The Hague, and this is part of the the United Nations construct, Mm -hmm. if I'm correct, Mm -hmm. ICJ. Okay, Okay, that's that's, that's very helpful. Last question. Um, You've been here now since 2017. Mm -hmm. Your time in Geneva comes to an end. What next for you personally, or is that just for you privately to keep to yourself? Well, there's still a lot of work this year. It's busier (laughs) than I thought, and I haven't actually thought beyond. Okay, very well put, Ambassador. Thanks very much for asking my question. It's been an education Mm -hmm. for me, and I've enjoyed very much uh, listening to you. My guest today has been Ambassador Elizabeth Tiki Fisselberger, Austria's permanent representative to the United Nations. Thank you, Ambassador. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.